The following Dharma talk was given on retreat led by Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So we're here as human beings interested in suffering and the end of suffering and because of these teachings and our own experience we have some sense that um, the ending of suffering or the releasing of stress in the heart has something to do with patience or something to do with this capacity to understand suffering. And the Buddha says this very directly that it's the not understanding suffering which is the cause of suffering. And so we can think of patience both as an expression of awakening, like the heart is naturally patient when it understands the release of suffering, but it's also the cause for the release of suffering because we can't really understand suffering when we're busy trying to manage it, trying to be in denial of it, or have some fixed notion of it. It's only when we're patient that things get clear. There are three or four paragraphs in Ajahn Sushito's article that I sent everybody at the beginning of the retreat. It's his chapter on patience in the book Paramis. You can download that if you'd like. Somewhere in the middle of that chapter he says, our first effort is to draw a line around suffering. Take a step back and know that's that. And we'll see that like... uh, you know, we have this idea that if we can name the monster, if we know the name of the dragon, we have some power over it. And there's some truth. If we, you know, notice that we're suffering, if we can name, oh yeah, I'm really suffering now. I'm really sad. I'm really angry. I really feel lonely. There's a little safety in knowing that the mind's oppressed, being able to name it, being able to point at it. But it's just the beginning. So Ajahn says, then there's the effort to recollect that we can be free of suffering, that we can let go. We don't have to take suffering in and adopt it as a final, real, as final, real, and solid. Right? And that's when we have a little space in the mind where on the one hand we're really suffering, And on the other hand, there's some sliver of wisdom that understands this isn't what it appears to be. You know, like, I'm miserable. I'm acting the role of being a miserable human being really well, perfectly. But I don't quite believe it. You know that experience where things are really bad and you're acting it out. You're stamping your feet or you do whatever you do when you're really suffering. But there's some space in the mind that understands this isn't what it appears to be. The weight I'm feeling, the intractableness of this is an illusion of sorts. I can't see through the illusion. I'm still destined to play my role as the suffering being. But I know I have some sense it's a role that's being played some illusion or some game or some thing that isn't what it appears to be on the surface. (laughs) 
that we can let go. We don't have to take suffering in and adopt it as a final, real, as final, real, and solid. After that initial recollection, we have the encouragement to investigate and then to draw out the hooks that snag, the hook that snags our hearts on the rough stuff of life. All this takes patience. Patience holds us present with the suffering in a spacious way, encouraging the mind to open. And an open mind both feels more peaceful in itself and more readily sees into the causes of, su- of suffering. So this, in this way, patience is very much related to stability of mind. Without patience, no clarity. Without clarity, how is the mind going to investigate? And without investigation, being interested in how it is suffering arises, how it is that suffering ceases, there's no insight. And no insight, no freedom. So the second paragraph, Ajahn Sushito says, Patience is not a numbing resignation to the difficulties of life. It doesn't mean that suffering is all right. It doesn't mean shrugging things off and not looking to improve our behavior. Nor does it mean putting up with something until it goes away. The practice of patience means bearing with dukkha without the expectation that it will go away. In its perfection, patience means giving up any kind of deadline so the mind is serene and equanimous. Now this is sort of interesting. You know, um, to really realize a heart, a mind, that isn't burdened and isn't afraid with the conditions of the moment, we have to be with the suffering undefended. We have to be willing to be completely exposed because like you can think of this in terms of courageousness or bravery. You know, you're not really brave until you're completely exposed to whatever it is that's scary or mean. Then you're brave. You're not brave when you're not really there. You're only we're only brave when we're really there. So in terms of realizing the heart that's independent of conditions that come and go, independent of the particular circumstances, we have to be in that in a pure way, in a full way. We have to be steady with the conditions that are showing up. So that's why patience is both the cause but also an expression of wisdom or of of awakening. To be able to be steady with life is a good definition of awakening. Not afraid to be open, not afraid to be touched. But if the patience isn't pure yet and it takes time to develop patience, the mind still feels pushy or defensive. Impure patience is the attitude, just hold on and eventually things will get better. We, we have that in our retreat. You know, I'm just going to stick with this because it can't get worse. You know, it's got to get better. It's got to change. At least it will change. He goes on, I'll get my own way in the end if I'm patient enough. 
This approach can temporarily block or blunt the edge of suffering, but it doesn't deal with the resistance or the desire that is suffering's root. This desire that comes out of a sense of self, that I can get what I want. So it's exactly when we're patient, we're not thinking about getting what we want. The practice of patience is seeing if it's possible to be okay with the way it is. Not so that right, so later it will be different. That's why we say, even though we know things will change, we can say as a way of evoking a more full expression of patience as if it's never going to change. Sitting as if it's never going to end the set. As opposed to bearing with it, knowing it will end. Pure patience is a kind of acceptance that acknowledges the presence of something without adding anything to it or covering it up. It's supported by the insight that when one's mind stops fidgeting, whining, and blaming, then suffering can be understood. It is this suffering that stirs up hatred and greed and despair. And it is through practicing the Dharma that its energy and emotional current can be stopped. Reactivity isn't the truth of the mind. It's a conditioned reflex, and it's not self. Because of that, suffering can be undone, and when it is, the mind is free. So that's what we realize when we practice patience. In a moment, we can realize the mind that's not reactive. And like Ajahn says, initially patience is, the mind is reactive, but we're not acting it out. You know, it's, it's like we're restraining the mind from acting out its reactivity. But there will come a moment when the mind no longer reacts. It, in a sense, submits to the moment. And the mind, the awareness in the mind, will notice the cessation of reactivity. And the moment before the reactivity, the pattern to react ceases, there is this sense, this wrong sense that reacting is the only way or the only thing I can do. And it, because the reaction is synonymous with me, I'm reacting, I can't stand this, this is not okay. And then when it ceases, it's surprising because that felt like who I was and then it just ended that oh, can't be this way. You, you've seen this happen. We've all seen this happen where in one way or another we've drawn that line in the sand, whatever it is, with an argument with somebody we love or, you know, I'm done with Minnesota winters, I'm moving. And then we notice maybe a day later or whatever, an hour later, that we are delighting in the snow. We're actually enjoying it. And it might occur to us, like, where is the person? I thought I was the person who hated Minnesota winners. Or I thought I was the person who thought, this relationship is over. I can't live with this person anymore. And then something else is happening. Or I can't stand this retreat. I'm out of here. And then, So it's really useful. Patience allows us to see all these births and deaths of these attitudes that in the moment, 
seem like the absolute truth. It doesn't, we don't necessarily see it as just a momentary opinion. We see it like, no, no, I'm not kidding. This is, this is what I think. This is what I feel. This is the truth. In the last paragraph, therefore, all conditioned reflexes have to be understood as unreliable and dependent on causes and conditions. They are not to be adopted as real and solid. Yet they do not, yet they do happen, right? So these reactive patterns, they're not self, they're not real and solid, but they do happen. And he says, although they, although we can intellectually understand that holding on expecting things to be satisfying or feeling cheated or immature responses, in order to undo these attitudes, we must first be patient with them rather than adopt more miserable reactions. Why isn't it working? Why did you let me down? I shouldn't complain. Why is it like this? The practice is to bear with the waves of turbulence. The world, including our own bodies and emotions, is unsatisfying and a bit of a mess. But the practice does urge us to cross over it all. And this requires us to grow stronger and broader rather than hide or run away. Then the process of bearing with the suffering is not a punishment, but a voyage of growth. And I like, I like using this for myself and just as a teaching um, this, like I mentioned earlier, where's the heart that can be with this? Where's the heart that doesn't have a problem with this? So we're living our life and we keep bumping up with certain circumstances that we find unbearable, not okay. And then instead of just believing that it's not okay, we can ask the question, an honest question, not like pretending or forcing, but an honest question. Is there a heart, is there a mind that can be okay with this? Where is that mind or heart that can be okay, or that view, that understanding, that can be relaxed with this? And not like bear with it until it changes, but not be unburdened with this. And you can take specific issues in your life like some um, condition of ill health or you can take kind of social problems like racism because when we hear about these terrible things like uh, violence and, and hatred in the Middle East or economic racial injustices or um, whatever on a micro scale within our own hearts global scale. And then we ask the question, because when we see problems, because the habit of personalizing it, we feel personally oppressed by the problems, the messiness, the violence, the injustice that we see. And it's true that suffering that we see, our own or others' suffering that we see, it should touch our heart that compassion isn't a deadening, heavy quality. Compassion is an enlivening, beautiful quality. So then we ask the question, well, 
is there a heart, is there a view, is there a way of being that can come alive with these conditions instead of feel deadened, burdened by these conditions? What is that mind, that heart, that view, that way of being that would be enlivened by these conditions that are being known, being felt right now? Because it, it really challenged the notion, like, I would know, not now, not this. Like I, when this is done, yeah, then I can get back to being enlivened or being engaged or being happy or being awake. But first, I've got to deal with this thing. When we understand that, then we see these places where we experience impatience as our teachers. Right? They're, they're showing us or they're creating the opportunity at least to ask that question, to wonder about uh, is there a way to come alive here and now? Or do I have to solve this problem first? This is the more usual self-story. First I have to solve this problem and then I'll be free. But is there freedom being a human being with problems but no answers? Whatever, however mundane the problem might be, like having to get to uh, sit and we're restless. And, you know, we have these four, three or four floods these asawas that I talked about the other night, the flood of sensuality or sense desire, the flood of becoming, the flood of ignorance, having fixed views, self-view. So these floods, these proliferations of our mind are ways of dealing with, it's like the alternative to being patient softening, relaxing, getting interested, leaning into or allowing, receiving the difficulty in life, we choose to be swept away because it seems to give a, get us away from the problem, right? So we think about something pleasant. That's a very common thing. When things are rough, we start to think about something pleasant that helps us um, justify or manage the difficulties in our life. Well, at least there's my warm bed at home or there's going to be a nice meal coming up. So I can bear with this work because I'll get this treat. you know. Or pretty soon I'll have vacation and I won't have to work. Or pretty soon I'll be retired and I'll be able to put it all down and everything will be fine. So we have these like... Uh, and it's all, this is what we mean by sensuality, where um, we're using some imagined pleasant experience, and there are pleasant experiences. So these, as we imagine them, this imagination is based on actually having ice cream and having vacations and having these experiences that, as a contrast to other parts of our life, are delightful or nicer or more pleasant. But it, that proliferation isn't pleasant. 
and the mind's dependence on sensuality, on sense experience, that's not pleasant. Certainly some sense experiences are pleasant, but not the dependence on sense experience. That's dukkha, that's suffering. And it's the same thing with becoming, you know, another one of the floods, another one of the places of almost ceaseless proliferation. Or in uh, one Buddhist scholar translates papancha, this proliferation, as diffuseness. Because right? it, it's the opposite of that unified feeling of being in the now, that diffuseness. And because when we're in our thoughts about things, we're disconnected from that unified now. And so being in that diffuseness feels uh, not real. So what do we do? We think more trying to make it real. Well, what about this? Well, how about I, I think? And we keep doing the same thing. We keep adding on to the diffuseness, the proliferation. And this is a, this is sort of an, a more specific way of talking about samsara, the cycles of suffering, right? It's the, we're in the world of mental proliferation and we're really busy in that world of mental proliferation, but just under the surface we're finding it really dissatisfying, trying to have ground and comfort in the world of mental proliferation, which is not grounding and not pleasant. So we just try harder at the same thing. We think more, we plan more, we worry more, we complain more, we analyze more, we fantasize more, and we feel more disconnected, more groundless, more empty of anything real. So we go to the only place we know to get something real, which is more mental proliferation. And on and on and on. That's why they're called the floods. So we have the flood of sensuality. So when that proliferation is about something pleasant, some pleasant sense experience, we have the flood of becoming. So when the proliferation is about me becoming somebody, so instead of a sense treat, it's, kind of an ego treat, like becoming somebody I want to become. And these overlap, of course. And then the third slash fourth flood, Sometimes some lists have three floods, some have four. So the thir- third and fourth are ignorance and wrong view, but they're really, you can group them as one. So ignorance, uh, one of the ways I like to think about ignorance is fixed a fixed view Right? So the mind is dependent on a view, holding tight to a view, including self-view, which is the most obvious form of, of uh, ignorance, self-view is. And you see self-view or uh, ignorance, that fixed view is uh, opposed to you know, just the nature of things which are fluid and changing. So it's always an insecure place. Whatever the fix, it doesn't matter what the fixed view, the view is fixed on. Because we live in a process world, a changing world, a fluid world. Any fixed idea is insecure. 
So we're constantly, you know, the flood with fixed views, with wrong view, is the mind is constantly patching it up. It has to constantly reassert the fixedness of its view because it doesn't hold up. Nothing holds up. Nothing stays the same. In the Dhammapada, the Buddha says, worldly, ordinary folks are enamored with obsessive thoughts. Awakened beings are free of obsessive thoughts. Another place in the suttas, this dhamma, right, this path, is for one who delights in non-diffuseness. It is not for one who delights in worldliness or papancha or conceptual proliferation. So, So I'm bringing this up because to see the connection between what we've been talking about, patience, and that unified experience that we can uncover and practice, the non-diffuseness. Sometimes it's useful to use the word that solidity because it feels solid or firm in a way, even though it's nothing actually. But the mind not endlessly wandering on one thought to the next, the absence of that has a real a feeling of real solidity, a groundedness. Not that there's ground, but the mind is stable, it's steady. It has a firmness to it. So this this is really pleasant. It's associated with samadhi, that steadiness. And to think of, we talked about last night, patience as a power, right? An empowering joy or an enlivening joy. There's life energy in this, this non-diffuseness. And of course, non-diffuseness doesn't mean things are not moving. It just means the mind, the wisdom's not moving. The wisdom's aware that everything's moving but it isn't associating itself with the movement, with the change. Another place in the suttas, in the middle link discourse, is the Buddha says, whatever, person, whatever a person conceives, that they differentiate. And what they differentiate, ideas and considerations arise in them. So whatever we conceive right, as a fixed idea, then there's some like there's always it always begs the other ideas. It always uh, causes other ideas. You can't have a fixed idea. This is good, without this other stuff is not good or less good. So once we put the stake in the ground the whole conceptual universe comes in. And when we let go, the whole thing goes away. When we let go of the fixedness, right, the whole world of story, of concept, really relies on that, the solidity that comes from attachment, from the identification, from the fixedness the mind gives to the stories. 
It's like um, when our when our practice is humming along and we're really much more in the moment in Dhamma, the way things are, then if for whatever reason we get drawn into a lot of story, it's like uh, it just doesn't make sense. You know, somebody telling the story of their life or kind of what I'm going to do. and I mean, what can come up is a very authentic compassion, but it's like, those those paintings we paint about ourselves and who we are and who we're going to become and what we want and what we did they're seen as being empty you know not really referring to anything but that's not how it is for us most of the time right we we kind of do this exchange where you know I'll tell you my story and you believe it and then you tell me your story and I'll believe it. And, I'll ha- and me believing your story will make it seem more real to you. And you believing my story will make it seem more real to me. And in that way, we can be codependent. And this very slippery world we live in, of our world of our stories, ideas, will feel a little bit more solid. So we have these floods sweeping us along. And um, we're beginning to see that we have this option between finding a unified place of real solidity, patience, but not, not from a fixed stance. Like that's the imperfect patience that Ajahn Sushita was talking about, like, I'm going to bear with this because I know it's going to go away. If I bear with this long enough, things will change. So it's still a fixed idea. So real patience is more and more being exposed or undefended or understanding that it's already this way. The world, the moment, it's already this way. So in this moment, and there's a certain timelessness to this. If I have the idea, yeah, but it might be this way for a long time, then I'm not going to be patient, right? Because that is unworkable, that idea that this is going to keep happening. We can definitely scare ourselves with ideas that make the moment unbearable. But maybe it's, we have to be careful about saying everything's workable that most things are workable for a moment, right? For a moment, like sometimes people come in and they'll say, you know, they'll kind of describe some really difficult circumstances. And I do this with myself, too. It's like, yeah, but right now, it's like this. It feels like this, right? So right now, can the heart, in a wholehearted way, say yes, not of course because we want it to be this way, but because it is this way, just right now. We're not saying you're going to do it forever, but just right now can we be completely accepting. And the interesting thing is, yeah, we can. It's so surprising that there's very little we can't say yes to. But we want to 
because of habit, we want to have a story and we want that story to involve time. So that strategy of just saying yes because it's already this way, yeah, but what about later? What about tomorrow? What about... As opposed to letting the response come from the acceptance, from the patient. So we're not saying it will be there tomorrow. We're just stepping out of time. So patience, that solidity, that non-diffuseness, that unification, it's a stepping out of time. And that's just another, that's not like some magical trick we do in practice. Stepping out of time is just the same as saying being in the present moment. When we're with the body, with the breath, with sound, with pain, with thought, as just thought, the mind has stepped out of time. You know, when you look at the Buddha's discourse on mindfulness, the first instruction he gives is, you know, being with the breath in and of itself, being with the body in and of itself, with feeling in and of itself, with the mind in and of itself. So not in terms of this or that, not in terms of our thoughts or our concepts of the mind, the body, feeling, but in and of itself. So it's timeless. It's not in terms of anything else. It's not in terms of a story of me. It's just this in and of itself. So it strips away a lot. And in stripping away a lot, will feel that unification. Like if you check right now, I just encourage you to use your own experience right now. And we, you know, notice there's the sensations of the body, activity of the mind. And the more we relax and settle with interest, you'll see that There's just this. It's not a diffuse reality. It's a unified reality. The present moment is this. It's a unified reality. It only becomes diversified when we think about it. And then there's like me and you earlier today and now going home later today. That's the, the, the diversification of our reality, but it's dependent on thought and identification with thought. Then the world begins to appear to be diversified. It has time, it has evaluation of good and bad, separation of self and other. All of these dualistic things come, literally are born through that process of proliferation. So we practice being patient by remembering the experience of here and now. It's like the alternative to impatience is understanding it's like this now. And, you know, as um, advice from our teachers, we can remember some values like humility and vulnerability, being undefended, because we use the proliferation 
to defend, right? To be certain. So when we, through our teachers, when we know that, hey, the way is the way of humility, the way of uncertainty, the way of vulnerability, then maybe we're willing to check it out. Like that that's actually not dangerous, humility, uncertainty, vulnerability, exposure. It's not dangerous. It's avoiding insecurity that's dangerous. Thinking like constructing the idea, if only, then I'll be safer. That's a dangerous idea. If only we have, you know, whatever it is, 20,000 nuclear missiles, then we'll be safe, (laughs) you know. Or if only I have this amount of money, then I'll be safe. If only I could change my wife to be the way I want her to be, then I'll be safe. If only I can, and it just goes on and on like that. And that doesn't make us safe. It, It basically spoils everything that way of thinking, that way of being. This is, uh, I mentioned briefly this article, but I wanted to, I didn't read from it, I wanted to just share this little teaching from Ajahn Sumedho. This is actually in Jack Kornfield's book, After the Ecstasy, the Laundry, and he quotes Ajahn Sumedho here. Not sure where he got this quote. And he's just talking about how it can be so simple. Ajahn Sumedho says, For minds obsessed by compulsive thinking and grasping, you simplify your meditation practices to just two words, let go. Now, let go doesn't work for everybody, so you can substitute let be, you know, or what are the other words? Let be, bear with, be patient. Rather than try to develop this practice and then develop that, achieve this and go into that, the grasping mind wants to read the suttas, to study the Abhidhamma, to learn Pali and Sanskrit, then the Maja, Mika, the Praja, Paramita, get ordinations in the Theravada, Mahayana, Vajrayana, write books and become a renowned authority on Buddhism. Instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international conferences, why not just let go? (laughs) Let go, let go. For years I did nothing but this in my practice. Every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I'd say, let go, let go, let go, until the desire would fade out. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in an incredible amount of suffering. There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. (laughs) Some of you might have the desire to become the Buddha of the age, Maitreya, radiating love throughout the world. Instead, just be an earthworm who knows only two words, let go, let go, let go. And that's, uh, you know, it can sound a little disheartening or you know, a resigned way of practicing well. But again, we want to have a sense of this as an empowering joy, like getting simple, putting down the proliferation, right? So seeing patience as the opposite of mental proliferation or conceptual proliferation. 
Like the first night when I gave the talk, I mentioned patience with intention. So there's intention to think. So we're, we're not taking the bait. It's there, but we're not taking the bait. We're choosing or orienting instead to the unified experience of now. Now the unified experience of now is very vulnerable, very exposed, because there's no concept that appears to give us some defense, some ground. That's why it's not easy to rest here, because we're used to have been feeling defended by a story that we're telling ourselves about who I am and what's happening. So we're choosing to let go of a security that was never secure. And where is this line that I read in Jack Kornfield's book? I don't think it's his, but it's something like we choose the uh, the sort of sure ground of nothingness instead of the um, oh boy, I can't remember, but it, it's like it's not what it appears. Like being willing to be vulnerable, being willing to be the mind free of fixed ideas seems like groundlessness, but it actually turns out to be a refuge. And in trying to define things and fix things and secure things, we end up creating a sense of self who will never be safe. And that is the greatest tragedy. You know, we construct a sense of self who wants to be safe, but the parameters in which that self was constructed are like sand through the fingers. The self, we've created a self that has at its core existential anxiety and uneasiness that just comes with the conceptual construction of, of me and who I am. We have to constantly, because it's like sand through the fingers, we have to constantly be telling ourselves a story of who we are. And we have to enlist everybody else to help us. You know, We want them to tell us our story. And they want us to tell, uh, tell them their story. And it's this conflictual relationship we have with the people we actually care about. And good relationships are marked by finding some harmony where we know how to tell stories that are both about you and me at the same time, right? And that we both somewhat agree you know, on. But it's not a way to live a life, as we have learned. Ajahn Sumedho, again, from a different book of his, this is, remember, I was telling you about how he'd really learned patience listening to Ajahn Chah's three-hour Dharma talks in a language he didn't understand and realized that he could just bear with it. And he gives another example, this sort of classic example of blaring loudspeakers when he's trying to meditate at night from the local village. He says, Then I began to see for myself I remember sitting there thinking, here I am getting all upset over this. Is this, is it that bad? What's really bad is what I'm making out of it. What's really miserable is my mind. Loudspeakers and noise and distractions and sleepiness, I can put up with that. But it's it's that awful thing in my mind that hates it, resents it, 
wants to leave, that's the real misery. That evening I saw what misery I could create in my mind over things I actually could bear. I remember that as I remember that as a very clear insight into what I thought was miserable and what really is miserable. At first I was blaming the people, the loudspeakers, the disruption, the noise, and the discomfort. I thought that was the problem. Then I realized that it wasn't. It was my mind that was miserable. If we reflect on and contemplate Dharma, we learn from the very situations which we like least if we have the will and the patience to do so. And this is, you know, the basic teaching on the second arrow. And we see that in so many different ways, so many different moments, that second arrow. And they're real gifts. I mean, I remember very clearly, 1981 or 2, um, sitting in this beautiful place in the mountains in Alaska and just seeing with such clarity my mind chasing my mind. And just like that was the problem. And it was so clear because I was in, I was with two people that I loved backpacking and uh, an incredibly beautiful place. And my mind was just chasing the mind, you know, that mental proliferation. And just seeing it with such clarity, like that's the problem. And the resolution to that problem is let go, let go, let go. Like not to think that resolving the mental proliferation involves mental proliferation. Like I got to think that I need to stop mentally proliferating as a way to cease mental, mental proliferation. It's really about putting something down. And you know, you've heard me use the example of dropping a hot pan, doesn't take thought to put the hot pan down. It just takes noticing how much it hurts. right? And it's the same thing with patience. Patience, and again, don't think of this as, a, this is enlivening and empowering, uh, an empowering joy. But we see, like, in a way, we're trapped. All of our habit energy is telling us to think about it one way or another, including it might be to think how bad I am to be thinking about it. Even that is just more of the same, right? And we kind of get backed into a corner that every instinct we have involves some kind of mental proliferation. And then because the mind is somewhat cornered and because hopefully we've gotten some pointing out instructions, then it just occurs to us to authentically feel what it feels like, like that it hurts. And it's that's what I said right at the beginning of the talk. It's the not understanding dukkha that is the cause for dukkha. Because when m- the mind really understands that dukkha hurts, the mind understands what to be let, what is letting go, like how to let go. In a way, this is the real fruit of practice, is that the mind knows more and more often, more and more quickly, what needs to be let go of. And it isn't somebody letting go. It's letting go happening. 
and understanding that letting go happens when the heart touches the reality of the moment. That opening in this undefended, insecure, vulnerable way is the cause for letting go. There is no other way to let go. We need to be patient. We need to be undefended with our pain, with the ambiguity, with the doubt, with the desire, with everything for whatever is being held to be released. Release comes from meeting things as they are. There's no other way. So this is why in in Buddhism we, we highlight the world. A lot of times, especially in Theravada Buddhism, there's this thought that the world is bad and we've got to get the heck out of here you know, into whatever enlightenment is. But the Buddha knows Dhamma. That's the refuge. Buddha knowing Dhamma, the way it is. We have to open to the way that it is to realize freedom, the beautiful qualities, the awakened qualities. So let's leave it here. We'll just take a moment, let go of the words. And for just a few more seconds, resting in this unified space of the present moment. And thanks for listening, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.